The text for this morning's message is found in the fifth chapter of Galatians, verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The upshot of last Sunday's message was that when I get up in the morning, I ought to feel as much concern for your welfare as I do for my own. And that is devastating to me because it is so incredibly hard. It's a hopeless feeling to uh, know that you have to make the measure of your love for others, how much you care for yourself. And so many of you might have gone out last week feeling like uh, instead of freedom, Christianity was very great weight on your back. And I think this text today, verses 16 to 18 of Galatians 5, is intended to help lift the load if you feel it weighing down. The secret is to walk by the Spirit. That's the key phrase, isn't it? In verse 16. If the Christian life looks too hard, we must remember it is not primarily we who are called to live it, but rather God called to live it through us. We have to learn to walk by the Spirit, whatever that means. And the command of love, therefore, is not intended to be a new legalistic burden to weigh us down. It's intended, on the contrary, to be something that flows freely when you are walking by the Spirit. People who try to love without God's Spirit are always going to be trying to fill this bottomless cavern of need and never experience their life as an overflow to others. And so love ceases to be love, and we have to admit that it's just plain not easy in ourselves. We have to learn to walk by the Spirit. So I want to, to build my message around three questions. One, what is it to walk by the Spirit? Two, uh, why is it so important to walk by the Spirit? And three, how very practically can we do it? What, why, and how? The three most important questions to ask about most things. First then, what is it? There are two clues Two images in the text besides that one, which I think shed light on what it means to walk by the Spirit. The first one is in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, there's a new image. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Led by the Spirit means the same, I think, basically as walk by the Spirit. If Paul had said, if you follow the Spirit... I think that would be true. If you follow the Spirit, you're not under law. But the, the emphasis would have shifted distinctively, wouldn't it? Because the emphasis when he says you are led in the passive voice, you are led by the Spirit, is that God seems to be the main actor here. We are led. Or we 
follow behind the Spirit, not like the cars in the Daytona 500 follow behind the pace car, but the way train cars follow behind a locomotive. We are led by the Spirit, not in our own strength. We are drawn along and empowered by His strength. And so, walk by the Spirit then, according to verse 18, I think would mean, stay hooked up to the locomotive that leads your life. Second image, verse 22, which we'll deal with in detail when I come back from vacation. I'm not quitting, by the way, on Galatians. We'll wrap it all up in August. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. If the Christian walk is to be a walk of love, joy, and peace, then it has to be a walk by the Spirit. Or walking by the Spirit and bearing the fruits of the Spirit mean the same thing. Wouldn't you agree with that? That to walk by the Spirit means to bear the fruits of the Spirit. But notice again, the emphasis is not on our effort, but on God's activity. A tree doesn't make a great deal of effort to have the, the fruit sprout out on its branches. The Holy Spirit has to go to work to bring it about. I think Paul may have gotten that image from Jesus. John 15, you all know that text, where it says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So how do you walk by the Spirit? You abide in the vine. Stay connected to the vine. When you do that, the Holy Spirit, the sap just flows and fruit emerges in your life. So don't cut yourself off from the flow of the Spirit. So, answer to the first question. What does it mean? What is this walking by the Spirit? Is this. It means being led by the Spirit or bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And in both of those, the, the work of the Spirit in you, doing something through you, is emphasized. But, your will is very deeply engaged in this. You are not being drawn along against your will to love. That's inconceivable. You wouldn't even be loving. You must want very much to be coupled to the locomotive. You must want very much to be abiding in the vine. And there are some really practical things that you can do to see to it that you don't Get cut off from the vine and that you do stay coupled up to the locomotive. But that's the how. Before we ask the how question and the practical how to, let's ask the second question, why? Why is it so important that we walk by the Spirit? Is this optional or is there something really important at stake here? There are two reasons given in the text. The first one is in verse 16 and the next one is in verse 18. Verse 16 gives us an incentive for walking by the Spirit because it says that when you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. Now here, I've got to criticize the, uh, the RSV. My, my good old RSV blows it in verse 16. 
And all of you who have anything else like the NIV or the King James or the NASB, you've got it right. Because the RSV makes the second hand of verse 16, second half of verse 16 into a command. It isn't a command. It's a promise. It says, do not gratify the desires of the flesh in the RSV, but all the other major versions make it a promise, and that's right. This Greek construction always has a promissory character. Everywhere else it's used in Paul, and it fits the context real well right here. The proper translation going with the NASB then is, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, that's the command, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So the first reason why it's so important to learn to walk by the Spirit is because when you do, you've got victory over the flesh and its desires. That's important. Now, in the, in the past couple of uh, messages, I've tried to, to define for you the flesh, this uh, real important word in Paul. And I've said that usually it does not refer to the body. It does sometimes. In fact, we're going to see a place in a few minutes where it does refer to the body. The, usually it's a very bad thing, but Paul doesn't consider the body in and of itself bad. But when he uses the flesh in a bad sense, it's a lot more than the body. Here's the way I defined it a couple of weeks ago, and I want to stick by it today and show you why I use this definition. The flesh, since it's producing all these desires we're not supposed to have, is the ego that feels a need, an emptiness, and then uses all of those resources that it has in its own power to fill that need. And I'm distinguishing those from God who do not lie within the flesh's power. Or to put it another way, the flesh is the eye who tries to satisfy me with everything except God. That's the flesh. The flesh is that impulse in you, that you, that tries to satisfy the, the emptiness of life with everything, both the moral things and the immoral things, everything except God. Now, here's where I get the idea. Look at verse 24 of chapter 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So he speaks of a crucifixion that has happened to this awful flesh. Now, turn back to 2.20 with me. This great verse that many of you know by heart. To me, one of my favorite verses in this book. And see if you see immediately what I'm going to see. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... There's that innocent bodily use of the word flesh. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, flesh here is used innocently. That is, Paul is simply saying, my life is going on now that I'm a Christian in the body. And that's not bad. The flesh, I think he equates with his eye. Because he says, I have been crucified in 2.20. He says, the flesh has been crucified in 524, which confirms my understanding that the flesh is the old eye. And what's the characteristic of that old eye in 220? You can tell by looking at what the new eye does. 
The life that I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what did the old I hate to do? Trust God. The flesh is that I, that ego, that senses a deep emptiness and loathes the thought of filling it by trusting the mercy of God. Stand that thought. The flesh works its head off, producing desires for things to fill the emptiness which are not God. Now, it's not surprising then, is it, that in verse 17 of chapter 5, there's a war between that flesh of ours and God's Spirit. Now, if you're you're really sharp. You're probably asking yourself a question right now. Uh, now, wait a minute. How can there be a lively war going on between God's Spirit and my flesh if, as verse 24 says, it's crucified? Now, when I get to verse 24, I'm going to talk more about the meaning of the crucifixion of the flesh. Right now, let's suspend judgment and give Paul the benefit of the doubt that he wouldn't contradict himself in the space of just four or five verses and assume that both can somehow be true. The flesh has been crucified and the flesh is doing battle with the Spirit somehow or other. And I'm going to make a comment how I think that is in, in a few minutes. The main thing is something else in verse 17. Let's read it. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. The main thing to be learned from verse 17 is that Christians experience struggle within. If some of you, when I was defining the flesh a minute ago, said to yourself, well, I got a lot of that left in me. You need not infer automatically that you're not a Christian. Not at all. Because this verse describes the Christian as a person in whom there is a war going on. A Christian is not a person. Listen, everybody. A Christian is not a person who has no evil desires. Clear? A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires. And so the people I'm concerned about are not the people who struggle, but the people who are content with their worldliness. See? So uh, conflict in your soul is not all bad. I know that if, if you really love God, you desire with me for the day when all that crummy flesh is going to be over and gone. Either when we die or when the Lord returns. Great day. No more conflict. But you know there's something much worse than the conflict that's going on inside the heart of the believer. No conflict. When the flesh rules the citadel and all the outposts. Serenity in sin is death. Don't desire it. Praise the Lord for conflict in your heart. The Spirit has landed. We've used this image before on the beach. 
And he aims to do battle with the flesh. And so take heart if your heart feels like a battlefield sometimes. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires. It's that you hate them. Okay? You, by the power of the Spirit, hate them and are doing battle against them day by day. But, if you put verses 16 and 17 together, the main point is not war, the main point is victory. Verse 16 promises it. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not let those bad desires come to maturity. You will nip them in the bud. God-centered desires will get the ascendancy and crowd out those old man-centered and world-centered desires. And you will have victory. I don't mean no war, but I mean that in the war, the Holy Spirit, by and large, is winning. And I think what verse 24, now I'm going to give you my little preview of verse 24 what verse 24 means when Paul says that the flesh has been crucified is this. The decisive battle in the war with the flesh has been fought and won by the Spirit. He has come in and, and uh, taken the citadel and broken the back of the resistance movement of the flesh. The flesh is as good as dead. Or to use the hymn of Martin Luther, uh, lo, his doom is sure. He said that about Satan. The same thing applies to your flesh. But there are outlying pockets of resistance. And the gorillas of the flesh make their little forays into your consciousness repeatedly. And therefore, Christian life in this age is never a perfectionistic one. You will never arrive. Paul said, not that we have already attained. It will be a fight to the very end. And Paul said it, didn't he, at the end of his life? I have kept the faith. I have fought the fight. He was fighting right up to the end. And what we need to do to fight is walk by the Spirit. That's the key. You walk by the Spirit and you conquer. You don't let these gorillas that keep attacking you get into the citadel. That's the first reason of why it's so important to walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not let those desires conquer and control you. Second reason why it's important to walk by the Spirit. Verse 18 if you are led by the Spirit, which I think means the same thing as walking by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. And who wants to be under the law? Nobody. And therefore, there's an incentive here, a reason why it's important to walk by the Spirit. What does it mean? If you've been tracking with me now, you'll know that this sentence does not mean Christians don't have to fulfill the law. We do have to fulfill the law. All you have to do is go back up a couple of verses to verse 14, 13 and 14. 
through love be servants of one another. Why? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. You're supposed to fulfill the law and fulfill it by loving one another. Or to use the words of Romans 8, 3, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When you walk according to the Spirit, you're not under the law, which doesn't mean you're not obliged to fulfill the law. It means this. When the Spirit is leading, the law is a railroad track. And you are highballing it to heaven, coupled to the locomotive of the Spirit, happy as a bird to fulfill the law. When the Spirit is not leading you, and you are not walking by the Spirit, the law is a ladder. And you are left to your own strength to climb it from underneath. And it's felt as a great burden. You ever asked why Psalm 119 could be written? 175 verses or something delighting in the law? How in the world can anybody delight in the law unless it's a railroad track instead of a ladder? And that's what it means when it says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the oppression or the punishment of the law. And the reason is because the Spirit moves you to do what the law requires. Look at verse 22 again. The very famous passage about the fruit of the Spirit. The all-encompassing fruit of the Spirit is, first and foremost, love. But verse 14 says, love fulfills the whole law. Which means that when you bear the fruit of the Spirit... You fulfill the law, which means that when you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, you're fulfilling the law. As easily as a tree bears fruit. Now to prove that this is the way Paul is thinking, look at the way he winds up his list of the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 23, after he gives all the fruits of the Spirit, he says, against such there is no law. In other words, when you are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, or walking by the Spirit, or being led by the Spirit, you're not under the condemnation and the oppression of the law because you're bearing the fruits against which there is no law. You are fulfilling the law. The second reason that we should walk by the Spirit is then the same as the first, right? They're really not different. The first reason in verse 16 was walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And the second reason was walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit and you won't be under the law. And the reason they're the same is that not fulfilling the desires of the flesh means having that emptiness that the flesh feels that produces all those desires is filled up by the Holy Spirit. And when it's filled up by the Holy Spirit, it spills over in love, and love fulfills the law so that you're not under the condemnation and the oppression of the law anymore.
now. That's why it's important, and that's what it is. The most important question of all, probably, is the $60,000 one, how? Practically, Piper, if I leave here today, what can I do to, to respond to your sermon? You, you've all heard preachers say, you've heard me say, probably, let the Holy Spirit lead. Allow the Holy Spirit to control. And you've walked out saying, how do you do that? How do you let God control? He's God. How do I let God do anything? That's not an altogether bad use of language, provided we understand what's behind it. So I want to try to take you a step behind it and give you some real practical help with how to walk by the Spirit. First, I want to show you biblically how Paul thinks you walk and then give you a few illustrations to close. I think, to give you my answer ahead of time, that the way to allow the Spirit to control you is to keep your heart happy in God. That's it. Keep your heart happy in God. Or, put it another way, you walk by the Spirit when your heart is resting in the promises of God. The Spirit reigns over the flesh in your life when your life is a life of faith in the Son of God who loved you, gave Himself for you, and is now working everything together for your good. Faith, trust, rest is what you do in order to walk by the Spirit. Now let me show you a five-fold evidence for that in Galatians. We'll just tick them off one by one. I'm going to read backwards in Galatians to show you where I get this idea. First of all, Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Remember, we taught that genuine faith, since it drives out fear and guilt and greed and gives you an appetite to delight in the power of God, it inevitably results in love. But compare that to the fruit of the Spirit in 5.22. Love is the first and foremost fruit of the Spirit. So you've got love is the fruit of the Spirit, and love is inevitably produced by faith. How would you put those two together? I put them together like this. The way to walk by the Spirit is to trust the promises of God. Have faith. Rest in God. Keep your heart happy in God. Second text, the verse just preceding, chapter 5, verse 5. Hardly needs any exposition. You can see it right off. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. So if I were teaching you in a question-answer session, I'd say, now, how would you go about waiting through the Spirit? And I hope you all would say, by faith. And there's the answer. The Spirit reigns mightily in our lives when we do one thing. Trust God. Rest in God. Keep your heart happy in the delectable promises of God. Third text. Chapter 3, verse 23. 
Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law. Does that sound familiar? Verse 18 said, how do you get out from under the law? If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, when faith comes, you're not under the law. Now, I ask you again, how do you get led by the Spirit? You get faith. You trust the promises of God. You rest in His mercy. You make your heart happy in the Lord by opening the Bible and letting the Word kindle faith. Fourth, chapter 3, verse 5. This is the most important verse of all because it's the most explicit statement of what I'm saying. Chapter 3, verse 5. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you Let me stop right there and paraphrase that so you can see where I'm going. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, leads you, bears fruit in you, and causes you to walk by his power, does he do that by works of law or the hearing of faith? And the answer is clear. Now, how do you... Does anybody in this room not want to experience the Holy Spirit's power? Not want to walk by the Spirit. Not want to be led by the Spirit. Not want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I'm just assuming you all want that. And here's the answer. The hearing of faith. So hearing, what does that mean? That means you need to open your Bible in the morning. When you're full of fretting and guilt and greed. You open your Bible and you start looking for something to hear and believe in. Some promises. And you find one. Like Hebrews 13. Be content with what you have. For I will never leave you nor forsake you. And all of a sudden your greed goes. And you find another one. Fear not for I am with you. And your fear goes. And then you find another one. He became sin for me. That I might become his righteousness. And guilt goes. And you're free. And you know what happens? The Holy Spirit is mighty in that moment that you are free. You walk by the Holy Spirit when you trust the promises of God. Finally, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who is this living Christ that is indwelling every believer? Who is that? That is the Spirit. For chapter 4, verse 6 says, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That means this verse has something to say about how to walk by the Spirit. How did Paul, in verse 20 of chapter 2, engage the life of the Spirit of the Son? And it says it very plainly. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Day by day, Paul trusted the living Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. How much more then will he give me all things? And Paul simply says, Romans 8, 28. 
No matter what I face this week, the almighty son of God reigns and he will work it together for my good. He frees himself from fear and guilt and greed and is filled to overflowing with the spirit and spills out in love and walks thereby by the spirit. I could just go on and on with texts that put the spirit and faith together. 2 Peter 1.4, Isaiah 64.4, Romans 15.13, but I, I won't. I'll close with some illustrations. I w- yesterday at 5.30 a.m., I was standing in Pasadena, California, in the kitchen of Dan Fuller, my teacher, who uh, taught me about everything I know and I love very much. And his wife had gotten up to see me off. I'd spent three days there in his house at a conference out there. And uh, we were standing in the kitchen Ruth, uh, and here's what I will not forget about that kitchen. The sink is here, window looking out in the backyard, and under the window, there's a little strip of wall, and on the wall, four six-inch long strips of white paper on which were typed promises over the sink. What are those for, Ruth? That's where I fight the fight of faith. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit, women and men. Wherever your life takes you, you keep promises before you. I have set the promises always before me, therefore I will not be moved. We could preach. Here's my experience. I, uh, I keep beside my little prayer bench at home a stack of scrap paper like this. And whenever I read in the Bible, in my devotions, a promise that looks like it would be a great sword to lop off the head of some uh, one of those gorillas of fear or greed or guilt, I write it down. Yeah, I got, I don't know, a couple dozen here from the past several months. And then when I have a dry spell, I just soak my head in this pile. Kind of hard to soak your head in chapters 1 to 9 of Second Chronicles. You won't, won't get too much. But if you've called the beautiful things out of Chronicles and 1 Samuel and Genesis and Psalms as you've gone along, then when you have a dry spell and you don't have all that much time, just soak your head in promise after promise after promise. And pretty soon, the Holy Spirit is reigning and leading in your life. George Mueller, you all know George Mueller, the... uh, the orphanage builder, the man known for his great faith, the man who built and did great things for God. Listen, you might be surprised at what he wrote in his autobiography about what was number one in his life's priorities. Quote, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I could serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Now, what is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God, end quote. George Mueller learned that to walk by the Spirit, you have to meditate morning, noon, and night 
on promises which will kindle faith. Remember that? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you look at the promises. The promises kindle faith. Faith dispels all that junk of the flesh and the Holy Spirit reigns and you're walking by the Spirit. Finally, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor learned it too. One day, he received a message that in the inner province near one of the mission stations, rioting had broken out in China. George Nickel, one of the 18 evangelists that worked with him, brought him the message, and when he left feeling very low and grieved and wondered what Mr. Taylor would do, all of a sudden heard whistling. The whistling of Mr. Taylor's favorite hymn, Jesus I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. And he went back in and he said, how can you whistle when your friends are in so much danger? And here's what Taylor said. Would you have me be anxious and troubled? That would not help them and would certainly incapacitate me for my work. I have just to roll the burden on the Lord. And then his son, writing the spiritual secret of Hudson Taylor, years later, wrote this. And fathers, let's live this way so that our sons and daughters will write this about us. Hudson Taylor, my father, had learned that for him only one life was possible. Just that blessed life of resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances while he dealt with the difficulties inward, a war, and outward, great and small. So I close by saying, brothers and sisters, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You will have victory over temptation. You will have the guidance of the Lord in your lives if you take time to be holy. That's a great song. If you will take time to keep your heart happy in God by meditating on His promises because they cultivate faith.